Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 22, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Burkett Notes Our blessed Savior had often acquainted his disciples with his approaching death at Jerusalem. The Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem to be crucified. Now, in this chapter, he acquaints them with the destruction that should come upon Jerusalem in general, and upon the temple in particular, for their putting him, the Son of God, to death. The disciples, looking upon the temple with wonder and admiration, were apt to think that the temple, in regard to its invincible strength, could not be destroyed, or at the least, in regard with its incredible magnificence, it was great pity should it be destroyed. And accordingly they say to Christ, See what goodly buildings are here, as if they had said, Master, what great pity it is that such a magnificent structure should become a ruinous heap. But hence we learn, one, that sin brings cities and kingdoms, as well as particular and private persons, to their end. There are no places so strong, but an almighty God is able to destroy them, and sin is sufficient to lay them waste. Observe, too, that the threatenings of God are to be feared, and shall be fulfilled, whatever appearing improbabilities there may be to the contrary. God had threatened Jerusalem with destruction for her sin, and now it is not all her strength that can oppose his power. Learn three, that notwithstanding magnificence and worldly glory doth both mightily dazzle our eye, yet how little doth it affect Christ's heart. Even the temple itself, that most magnificent structure, Christ values no more than a heap of rubbish when the impiety of the worshippers had devoted it to destruction. Not one stone, says Christ, shall be left upon another unthrown down. This threatening was fulfilled forty years after Christ's death, when Titus, the Roman emperor, destroyed the city and burnt the temple. And Turnus Rufus, the general of his army, plowed up the very foundation upon which the temple stood. Thus was the threatening of God fulfilled. Jeremiah 26.18 Zion shall be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps. The truth and veracity, the faithfulness and fidelity of God, is as much concerned in the execution of his threatenings as in the performance of his promises. Verses 3 through 5. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the signs of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Burkett notes, A double question is here propounded by the disciples to our Savior. First, as to the time of the temple's destruction. Secondly, as to the signs of that destruction. As to the former, the time when the temple should be destroyed, see the curiosity of human nature, both in desiring to know what should be hereafter, and also when that hereafter should be. Hence learn that there is found with all of us an itching curiosity and desire rather to inquire and pry into the hidden counsels of God's secret will 
than to obey the manifest declarations of God's revealed will. Tell us when these things shall be. As to their second question, what should be the signs of his coming, our Savior acquaints them with this among many others, that there should arise false Christs, false prophets, and seducers, a multitude of impostors that would draw many after them. Therefore he bids them take heed and beware, or observe that Christ doth not gratify his disciples' curiosity, but acquaints them with their present duty, to watch against deceivers and seducers, who should have the impudence to affirm themselves to be Christ, some Christ personal, or the Messiah, others Christ doctrinal, affirming their erroneous opinions to be Christ's mind and doctrine. From the whole, note one, that there will be many seducers, many erroneous persons, and false opinions before the end of the world. For Jerusalem's destruction was a type and emblem of the world's destruction. Two, that such seducers will come in Christ's name, and their errors and false opinions shall be given out to be the mind of Christ. Three, that many will be seduced and carried away with their fair pretenses and plausible deceits. Four, that Christ's own disciples had need to take heed, lest they themselves, being led away by the error of the wicked, do fall from their own steadfastness. Take heed that no man deceive you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Verses 6-8 through eight. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Burkett notes, The next sign which our Savior gives his disciples of Jerusalem's destruction is the many broils and commotions, civil discords and dissensions that should be found amongst the Jews, famines, pestilence, and earthquakes, fearful sights, and signs in the air. Anchophus declares that there appeared in the air chariots and horses, men skirmishing in the clouds and encompassing the city, and that a blazing star in fashion of a sword hung over the city for a year together. Learn one, that war, pestilence, and famine are judgments and calamities inflicted by God upon a sinful people for their contempt of Christ and gospel grace. Ye shall hear of wars, famine, and pestilence. Two, that although these be mighty and terrible judgments, yet are they the forerunners of worse judgments. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Verses 9 through 12. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nation for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. Burkett notes, Our Savior here goes on in giving further signs of the destruction of Jerusalem. One, he declares the sharp persecutions which should fall upon the apostles themselves. They shall kill you. Thence learn that the keenest and sharpest edge of persecution is usually turned against the ambassadors of Christ and falls heaviest on the ministers of God. Ye shall be hated and killed. 
The next sign is the apostasy of professors upon the account of those persecutions. Then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and hate one another. Learn hence, the times of persecution for Christianity are constantly times of apostasy from the Christian profession. 2. The apostates are usually the bitterest prosecutors. They shall betray one another and hate one another. A third sign is the abounding of false teachers. Many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. Where note that the fair pretense and subtle practice of, of heretical teachers have drawn off many from the truth, whom open persecution could not drive from it. A fourth sign is the decay and abatement of zeal for God and love one to another. The love of many shall wax cold, that is, both towards God and towards man. When iniquity abounds, trouble waxes hot, and when trouble waxes hot, false love waxes cold, and true love waxes warmer than it was before. The cold blasts of persecution blow up the love of a few, but blow out the love of many more. These are the signs laid down by our Savior for telling the destruction of Jerusalem. And for as as much as Jerusalem's destruction was not only a forerunner, but a figure of Christ's coming to judgment, these are also the signs for telling the approach of that dreadful day. Verse 13. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Burkett notes, Our Savior closes his discourse with an exhortation to constancy and perseverance, teaching us that there is no such way to overcome temptation and persecution as by keeping our integrity and persevering in our fidelity to Christ. That constancy and perseverance in our integrity and fidelity towards Christ is sometimes attended with temporal salvation and deliverance in this life, but shall certainly be rewarded with eternal salvation in the next. He that endureth unto the end the same shall be saved. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Burkett notes, Here our blessed Savior comforts his disciples with a threefold consideration. One, that his gospel, how hated and persecuted soever, should be plainly and persuasively preached the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. Therefore called the gospel of the kingdom, because it discovers the way to the kingdom of heaven. Observe, too, the extent of the gospel's publication. It shall be preached unto all nations, that is, to the Gentile world, not only amongst the Jews, but among the chief and principal nations of the Gentiles. Observe, three, the design and end of the gospel's publication and that is for a witness or testimony, namely, for a witness of God's grace and mercy offered to sinners and of their obstinacy who reject it. Learn, thence, that the preaching of the gospel, wherever it comes, proves a testimony to them to whom it comes. To the humble and teachable, it's a testimony for. To the scorners and despisers, it's a testimony against. Or in the words of the apostle, 2 Corinthians 2.16 To some it is the savor of death unto death, to others the savior of life unto life. Verse 15 When ye therefore shall see the abomination and desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. <laughs>
Burkett notes, The sense is, when you shall see the armies of the Romans, who are an abomination unto you, and an occasion of great desolation where they go, when you shall see that abominable, dissolute army, begritting the holy city of Jerusalem, then call to mind the prophecy of Daniel, which primarily belonged to Anicus, but secondly to Titus, and shall now be fully completed, for the siege shall not be raised till both city and temple be raised to the ground. Learn hence that God has instruments ready at his call to lay waste the strongest cities and to ruin the most flourishing kingdoms which do oppose the tenders of his grace and can make those whom most men abhor to be the occasion of their destruction. Verses 16 through 18. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. Burkett notes, The meaning is, as soon as you shall see the Roman army appear before the city of Jerusalem, let everyone that values his own safety fly as far and as fast as he can, even as Lot fled out of Sodom. And let such as fly be glad, if by flight they can save their lives, though they lose their goods, their clothes, and all things besides. From hence learn, one, that when Almighty God is pouring forth his fury upon a sinful people, it is lawful, yea, a necessary duty, by flight, to endeavor the hiding and sheltering themselves from the approaching calamity and desolation. When they shall see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, then flee to the mountains. 2. That in the case of flight before a bloody enemy and army, if we lose all that we have and our lives be given us, we fare well, and the Lord deals very mercifully with us. Verses 19 and 20. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight not be in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Burkett notes, Here our Savior declares the doleful distress of those that could not flee from the siege of Jerusalem, as women big with child, and such as give suck, who by that means are like to lose their lives. And the farther, he adds, that it should increase the calamity if their flight should happen to be in winter, when none can fly either fast or far, or if they should be forced to flee upon the Sabbath day, when the Jews scrupled traveling farther than a Sabbath day's journey, which was about two miles. From thence learn that it is a great addition to the trouble and disquiet of a good man's spirit when the day of his spiritual rest is interrupted, and instead of enjoying communion with God in his house, he is driven from house and home and flees before the face of an enraged army. Pray ye, says our Savior, that your flight be not on the Sabbath day that being a day of holy rest. Verses 21 and 22. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Burkett notes, The doleful miseries and dreadful calamities which were coming upon the Jews in general and upon Jerusalem in particular are here foretold by our Savior, partly from the Roman army without 
and partly from the seditious and fractions of zealots within, who committed such outrages and slaughters that there were no less than a hundred thousand slain, and ninety-seven thousand carried away captive and made prisoners. They that bought our Savior for thirty pence were now themselves sold thirty for a penny. Now did the temple itself become a sacrifice, a whole burnt offering, and was consumed to ashes. Yet observe, Christ promises that these calamitous days shall be shortened for the elect's sake. God had a remnant which he determined should survive this destruction, to be a holy seed, and accordingly the providence of God so ordered that the city was taken in six months and the whole country depopulated in eighteen. Whence observe how the Lord intermixes some mercy with the extremest miseries that doth befall a people for their sin. On this side of hell, no sinners can say that they feel the strokes of justice to the utmost, or that they have judgment without mercy.